Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is an exciting day, so exciting my voice just cracked because I get to sit across from Jason Dinsmore, a man who I've been trying to get to do the podcast since 1977. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, I was wearing bell bottoms when I first called him for this podcast. You know how you remember when Kennedy was shot? I remember the times that Jason Dinsmore texted me and said, sorry, buddy, I can't do it. So many network meetings and things come up and you don't understand this new position. I mean, it's crazy. There's new people coming in. There's people that I know who are going out and I'm here and it's a lot of transition, but I promise you we'll get it done. And sure enough, true to his word, which I knew he would, he is here, which I'm very, very, very happy about. First, I'm going to tell you, thank you guys so much for all your support and everything that you do. I will say that every show, I don't care if it's a broken record or not. You guys are the reason why the show is successful. I don't know if I could say that with a straight face because I can't believe it myself that you do something in your spare time. You want to sit across from people you think are smart. You want to inspire other people. And then millions of people listen, and truly, I can't believe it. And I I also can't believe that Montreal is bringing us back for the second time in three years, and also can't believe that reaching out to Howie Mandel, he said yes, and he's going to be interviewed for our live podcast up there. So you can get tickets on the Montreal Just for Laughs website, and I look forward to seeing you all up there. So I look at Jason Dinsmore 
And the first thing I say, I'm looking at a guy who I've known since he started in the business. And it's always a great thing when you meet somebody in the beginning because you see how they grow. And a lot of times, what's very odd in any business, if you've been at a place for 10 years or been in the business or been anywhere doing anything for 10 years, there's people who come and there's people who go. And you see them and you meet people and sometimes you say to yourself, well, that person's not going to be around much longer. And there's other people you see and you meet and they're a leader of men and women. And ever since I ever remember meeting Jason, and I know I met him long ago when Last Comic Standing first started in its first incarnation, which was a pilot called Comic House, but I don't always remember those times, but I remember some times a little after. And every time I was around him, what I felt from him was this guy who, I don't know, it was this weird kind of feeling. He was a guy who was a regular person that he could interact with the suits upstairs, but he could come down and gut it out with these comics who were hanging out trying to make a pilot that was unprecedented. And anywhere in between, he could talk to the craft service guy I would sometimes be around and I would notice a conversation they'd be having with somebody who was like probably the lowest level of a production. And I remember standing from afar, just watching and thinking to myself, this guy realizes that everybody on a production is important. Everybody means something. And when I met him, he always treated me like a million bucks and would always be able to navigate with me. And I noticed something about him that was really interesting that I thought was true to his success. He wasn't the kind of guy who put up airs. He wasn't the kind of guy who was like, hey, I'm flawless. I'm a guy who's perfect. I don't do anything wrong. I don't go out and hang out with people. I just stay and I do business. He was the kind of guy who figured out a way to navigate and could go out and have drinks with people who were of all walks of life in the business that we were working with, and then come in the next day and be able to just go and just seamlessly go into a different world. And I always remember that about him. And the reason why I'm sharing this is because if you don't know Jason very well, who's now one of the head honchos at CMT, who's basically changed the face of the network, he's a guy who started NBC as probably a coordinator or somebody of one of the lowest positions at the network. But you could see this guy on a trajectory, and he kept working his way up, working his way up, and became the second in command in the alternative division for reality, and was really, really involved with Last Comic Standing. And then when he left NBC, this is what's always amazing, everybody. There's people who leave networks and you don't see them again. You don't even know where they are. You don't hear of them getting another job. You don't figure anything out. And then there's the people that they like so much at a place that they decide, hey, you know what? Do you want to executive produce Last Comic Standing? We'd like you to do that. Now, if you don't like somebody in that work or something's ending, chances are somebody's not going to say, do you want to come on to our franchise that's doing pretty well and getting pretty great ratings? But they did. And he came on there and I saw a different side of Jason. 
another leadership side that was so fantastic. And he was able to deal with Peter Engel, who was a guy who was probably in his late 70s, approaching 80, a different kind of person, an old school guy who created Saved by the Bell, had his own ideas, had his own philosophies of how to do things. And they weren't always the philosophies that Jason's were or the people in the department at NBC. But Jason, now in a new position, seamlessly worked and navigated with Peter Engel, some of the producers on the show, and the network, who he was now not really working with anymore. And it was an incredible thing that he did. And I loved that season of Last Comic Standing. I loved it so well because it was a young man that I met who I predicted at one of the very first meetings that we had at Last Comic Standing that year, which I was lucky to be a part of because every year I was almost fired because they didn't want me around supporting the comics. But I told them I thought this young guy from East L.A. could win the whole thing, and he did, and that was Felipe Esparza. And it was a really special year, really beautiful. It was shot well. Everything about the show that year I was really impressed with. And I gave a lot of credit to Jason Dinsmore because we had a lot of executive producers come on the show. And a lot of them didn't have the skill to be able to hang out with comedians, network executives, people like Peter Engel who were legendary, and people like me who always tried to have the best interest of the comedians in mind. And there's just always something about him that was just so calm in the face of every storm, and it really impressed me. So if there's anything to be learned from me rambling on for the last eight minutes, it's the fact that in any business that you're in, if you want to move up and keep moving up, and certainly this man has moved up from a coordinator position at NBC or whatever it was to now being the executive vice president at CMT, it's this. Figure out a way to navigate all you can with all kinds of personalities. There's always going to be people out there who don't want you to succeed. They don't want you to get to the next level. But through the face of it all, you can figure out who those people are, identify who they are, work harder, navigate better, always learn how to deal with all kinds of personalities. And if you do that, you will rise, you will rise so quickly and so fast. It might be a decade, but after that time, I can guarantee you that you'll have the kind of career that Jason Dinsmore has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now for the end! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. 
and his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very, very happy. Somebody wake Jason up because the cold open went a little long, but now we're going to do the introduction, and I'm sure he's going to get some no-dos, and after this, we might have three minutes of podcast. Which, by the way, this is his first podcast ever. We have the exclusive, and we lasted longer than anybody else asking. And so here we go. Jason Dinsmore has graced our presence in the entertainment industry for over a decade. And with him, he's brought innovation, intelligence, creativity, and leadership. He is the current Executive Vice President of Development for Country Music Television, otherwise CMT, where he oversees all growth and programming of every single original series run on the channel, entailing oversight of scripted and reality series, documentaries, and news and production and talent. As a native of Texas, Dinsmore graduated from Howard Payne University, and made his way to serve as a visiting professor at UCLA from 2007 to 2010. I've always wanted to do that. From there, he moved his way up to become an experienced executive, spending some time at NBC Entertainment, where he served as the vice president of alternative programming and development and the senior vice president of alternative development. He was responsible for shows like Minute to Win It, Deal or No Deal with Howie Mandel, who I'm interviewing in Montreal, very exciting. Three Wishes, The Restaurant, and The Sing-Off. He's overseen the production of the Golden Globes, Miss USA, Miss Universe pageants, and the Tournament of Roses and Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parades. Since joining CMT, Dinsmore has redefined its brand, creative filter, including the double number of series in development, and launching the most successful series and shows in the network's history. With his guidance, CMT made some impressive moves into scripted television, saving one of the audience's favorite series and mine, Nashville, and snagged the network's highest ratings ever with the scripted comedy Still the King. He even jump-started some of the brand's biggest and most popular hits like I Love Kelly Pickler, Party Down South, 
and Broken Skull Challenge. Jason also made big strides in the documentary division of the company, which he created successful ratings for Johnny Cash, American Rebel, Urban Cowboy, The Rise and Fall of Gillies, and recent documentaries named The Bandit and Chicken People are currently being screened at film festivals around the country and premiered at South by Southwest. Dinsmore was named to Variety Music City Impact Report in 2015 for his influence on Nashville, and the Hollywood Reporter named him as one to watch in 2012 in their reality TV Hollywood Reporter 50 Most Powerful list. The president of CMT called Dinsmore a production-savvy executive with deep background and hit reality who enjoys a terrific reputation with the L.A. community. Certainly a terrific reputation every time I'm with him, and we have him now. Please welcome my guest today, Jason Dinsmore. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. It's nice to be here. This is so fantastic. I can't believe it. Now, I'm looking across from Jason and I realized to myself, when you walk into this place, you don't really know what you're getting into. And he knows me as the manager producer. He doesn't know me as some guy at lunchtime or breakfast time talking to a mic like I'm a radio personality. But I really appreciate you coming. And I wanted you so badly here because I think you're a guy who has so much to offer and so many people can relate to your story. And that's why you're here. And I know it's strange that I keep pushing you to come, but I'm so glad you finally came. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I did absolutely zero research coming in, so I'm going blind. Uh, except for this morning, I did listen to one podcast um, and something stuck out very quickly. And, and that is that it seems like you... Are a, a true arbiter of television and industry, the industry itself. And even more importantly, I think I discovered that I would be very comfortable because you're so gracious to, to when you're speaking to, to anybody. So thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Well, I want you to be, I want you to be comfortable. Now I'm uncomfortable. No, I'm, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very, very comfortable. It's all good. I have so many things I want to ask you and so many places I want to start. But I think the first thing I want to ask you is, I really meant what I said when you always seemed like one of the guys. I always pictured you as a guy who easily could be out till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning with some buddies, get three hours, four hours sleep, roll into the office early, and somehow be ready to go and be able to navigate in both worlds. Am I wrong? Uh, no, no, that was that was that was a, a great two years of my life where I could actually do that, but that's not, it's not really true anymore. <laughs> I'm in my mid forties, so I like to go to bed by nine a uh, nine p.m. on a normal day. But yes, um, I, yeah, you know, like look, part of um, who I am is born out of where I came from, and you know, I come from very humble beginnings, and my first job in the industry was as a production assistant, and. I was in charge of craft service. That was my gig. So, um, you know, I ran a very tight ship. My craft service was great. And I was just so happy to actually be on set in any capacity that, um, you know, that I took a lot of pride in what I did. So I, I, I take that to say, I say that because, um, yeah, I, I make it a point to try to, you know, speak to everybody involved in any production across the board. Um, because I realize, you know, you have to have everybody facing in one direction with one goal. Um, and hopefully... If you get it right, you find some success. For those of us out there in the world that have no idea what craft services is, or like to say the nickname Crafty, 
why don't you tell the audience what a person from that area of a production gets and how they make money and what they do on the set to make life happier for all the people on the set? Um, it's amazing to me because this fee has not changed uh, in, well, at least 20 years because it's been at least 22 since I started it. And um, I got paid $125 a day. The day was usually a 12-hour day that usually extended to 16. I was the first one in and last one out. Um, and quite honestly, productions are so intense and they take so much effort and energy. Um, one of the few perks uh, that you have to get right is you have to make sure that they have enough hydration, they have enough opportunity to find food, um, food that they want to eat. Um, basically, you have to make them happy by ensuring that you know, the simple things uh, uh, are available to them because of how difficult it is to actually make a show. So, you know, making sure you have the right M&Ms is an important thing. You know? Some people like peanut M&Ms, some people like plain. So, uh, you know, I really took pride in, and was, uh, you know, thankful for the opportunity, but I really took pride in my craft service. Uh, at 10.45 every morning, I had turkey sandwiches available, cut in quarters, and everybody knew that at 10.45, they could come over and get a turkey sandwich. For some productions, they give them a certain amount of money. It's a line item for a certain amount of money a week. Let's just say it's $2,500. And I always thought that a lot of them, they like going to Costco, they're going to dollar stores, they're doing everything so they can make as much of the $2,500 as possible. That's exactly what we did. It is exact. There were four PAs. We, I was a set PA. There was two production assistants who worked uh, in the production office, and then there were two productions who worked on show day. Um, and our job was, you know, literally to stock the storeroom full of goodies. Um, so once a week we would go to Costco and we'd fill up the back of a truck with as much water and sodas and candies. And, you know, it's a, it's, it sounds silly, but it actually is so important um, to get that right. And to have, uh, otherwise, you know, it could create discourse in, in a production day and, you know, it, it, I know it I know it just sounds a little bit silly, but it actually is one of the most important things to get right on any production. There's an expression that people use all the time, food is mood. And if you have great food and you take care of people and you're nice at that table where all the food is, you're in great shape. Tell us the biggest disaster that ever happened in your craft service short career. Um, wow, that's a good question. Let me think. You know, it's 95, so it's going to take me back pretty far. <laughs> um, well, I think the biggest disaster is that I thought I did a spectacular job. Um, and when the show got picked up for another cycle, uh, they didn't invite me back, <laughs> which was <laughs> probably the biggest disappointment. It might have actually been the biggest. It definitely was the biggest disappointment in my career at that point. Um, but uh, it actually still might be the biggest disappointment because I really, I really thought I had done an incredible job. Did you ask the line producer, by the way, the line producer is the person that hires Jason on a production. Did you go to the line producer and say, I, I thought I did a great job. Why, why did you replace me? Uh, if I recall, one of the other producers had a nephew. And uh, so there was a little nepotism and there was only one spot. So I didn't get the gig. Learned a lesson there. First time you get a job in the business, first time you're fired in the business. <laughs> I wasn't fired. I wasn't invited back. Oh, okay. <laughs> Close enough, though. <laughs> They say one of the greatest things to get the business is being a publicist because you get to be in touch with everybody. 
But people don't realize the craft service table, you meet everybody. You meet the writer's assistants. You meet the writers. You meet the producers, the executive producers, the network executives, the network president. Even though the network president has his food in that nice little area, they always venture out. They're like animals in the Serengeti. And they want to see, well, maybe there's something on that table that isn't on our table. And so the craft service job, if you can have it for a year or two, believe it or not, one of the most valuable jobs you can ever have because you can mix with people, you can talk with people. And a lot of times they don't even understand that you are the craft service person. There's no name tag on that says Jason Craft Services. He's just hanging out there. So they might assume that he's the craft service guy, but he can actually navigate with those people, and some of them have no idea. They just think he's a part of the production in some way, and then you can create great relationships. I'll give you one example. Um, one of my cohorts, one of my other production assistants who were in charge of craft service was a guy named Rich. Um, and we became friendly. He's a great guy. And uh, we sort of parted ways. We didn't talk for a while. We re reconnected years, years, uh, years and years later. Um, and he's now the executive producer of Big Brother and has been for, you know, I think since the first season or second season, he's been on it forever. So, you know, we were exposed and we met a lot of people and um, I'm still very friendly with many of those people. I have one great craft service story that I, uh, you know, took me a second to remember. So the show was singled out. It was a dating show on MTV back in the early days. Jenny McCarthy and Chris Hardwick. Correct. And Mark Cronin was the executive producer who we've had on the show. Yes, and I was so scared to even talk to that guy. I, you know, it was, it was very daunting. But, um, uh, you know, I was in charge of taking care of Jenny and Chris, and Chris really was um, uh, passionate about tiger's milk bars like i remember i had to go and i had to get these special sort of protein bars for chris and put them in his room and jenny uh had even a weirder uh, uh you know a, a witter need and she always wanted um a cheeseburger from mcdonald's and warm freshwater eel of all things so quite often it wasn't every time but it was you know certainly quite a few times i would have to get a mcdonald's cheeseburger and warm freshwater eel and have it in her dressing room when she arrived that's incredible. I <laughs> hope there was a sushi place next to McDonald's. I don't remember where it was. We shot in the valley, and uh, you know, I was pretty new to L.A., so I was just happy to have found the studio, to tell you the truth. And that was a really popular show. I mean, it really, at the time, was like a cult sensation. You had a beautiful girl as the host. You had a guy who every guy wanted to be like. It was a dating kind of thing, so there was the chemistry between the people and wondering whether they're going to go together. What was it like to be around that kind of frenzy? All the shows you've worked on, all the shows I've worked on, you can count singled out as probably in the top 5% of shows that really created like a real buzz about it. It was, it was a blast. I mean, I was, I was 22 years old. Most of the contestants were in their early 20s, so there was a great dating pool. Um, and uh, most of the people that worked on the show were also in their 20s. And it was kind of that at the height of the beautiful chaos that was the sort of MTV generation. And, um, you know, so it was, it, was, it was a really great place to work. Um, and, you know, I enjoyed it very much. Is it legal to date when you're working on a show? Um, I don't know. I never asked. <laughs> <laughs> I never asked. What about now? Let's say there's a production of something you're working on. Let's say it's 
the Johnny Cash documentary. So there's people working on the show. The executive producer who's working on that documentary, if he finds out that, let's say, a producer is is going out with the writer's assistant, is that something that's looked down upon or is that something that's okay? Um, I, I won't say that I haven't ever dated anybody on a production. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite, but I think it is frowned upon for the most part. But then you have to take into consideration that when you're working on a project um, so intensely for so many hours with a, a, a crew of people that you, you've come to, to know and love, it, it's, it's, it's not only uncommon. I mean, it's not only common. It's like it's frequent. Um, and I think that many, many relationships and partnerships have been formed by people working together. Got it. When you were at craft service, you said you have certain relationships that have stood the test of time. In your career now at CMT, is there somebody that you met back then that you formed a relationship with or at some point in time at NBC where you met with them and you rekindled the relationship and you ended up working on a project together? Hundreds. Hundreds of times. Yes. I mean, this is a business of relationships and I know you talk about that quite a bit and we, we've talked about it for 10 years or so. Um, uh, without a doubt, you know, if you're going to spend as a network and invest a, a tremendous amount of money in an idea, you generally want to do it with people that you trust and that you think are going to deliver the content that, you know, in the expectation, um, in the execution, um, that you, that, you know, that we all hope for. So yes, I mean, uh, I'm very friendly with Gary Auerbach, who was a producer on Singled Out back in the day, um, and uh, Andrew Glassman, who I knew from NBC for years and years and years. Uh, when I first started at CMT, uh, he was one of my first meetings, and I bought a show from him right away and said, how quickly can you get this on the air? I need it in six weeks, and I think he delivered the show in seven. It's fantastic. Is television production from a network executive hiring a producer of production company. Is it similar to owning a house and hiring contractors to do your house? And they say, Hey, we're going to get this done in seven weeks. And seven weeks later, it's like, ah, listen, you know, it's a, we're not, you know, it's going to be a little extra time before this bathroom gets done or our producers and production companies generally on time. I mean, I think it depends on the production um, itself, the idea, where you are in the phase of development, um, and sort of the scope. Um, there are producers that take a little bit longer, and there are producers that you know deliver under budget. Um, we know that going in. So for the most part, we are truly uh, buying an idea, um, and then we do our best to just sort of help guide the content in. One thing that we don't do is try to impose ourselves too much on producers. We, uh, and, and more so at CMT and I think even at NBC, um, we really do believe in sort of supporting the artist and the producer and their idea. And, um, you know, not imposing ourselves uh, in a way just to impose ourselves. So um, a friend of mine told me once, hey, Jason, you give a lot of notes. Um, and I was early in my career. And, and I looked back and I was given like 12 pages of notes for each cut uh, on shows. Um, and he said, you know, your notes are really good. They're helpful, um, but they take a lot of time to address. 
He goes, one of the things I learned um, is to never give a note unless you actually truly believe it's going to make the idea better. If it's just going to make it different, um, don't give the note. So I've, I've really, I've really brought that into sort of my philosophy of hiring producers. And quite honestly, I think it's been very beneficial because producers continue to come back over and over again and want to work with us. I give notes like you're talking about where I always give those specific notes and I guess I'm always thinking to myself, okay, if this is a B plus right now, if this thing was changed here and this little thing here, maybe not one, but if there's 10 little ones to every one big one, those 10 little ones might equal one big one and it might get it to like an A or A plus. And I've oftentimes given detailed notes like that and I haven't figured out how to pull myself back and just give the big note. And I think that I've learned something right here at this podcast for myself is that those little things like the, that's not going to make the show or break the show. And so that's great what you just said. And that really hit home for me. Well, I think you said a couple of things there. One is if you're going from a B to an A or a B plus to an A or an A minus, then I would give the note because that's a letter grade. But if it's going from a B to a B plus, I probably wouldn't give the note. Um, and quite honestly, I try to take a 10,000 foot view and say, is this going to bring another million viewers to the channel? Because if it's not, um, and, and the producer feels strongly about it, just let it go. In my opinion, there's very few things that bring another million viewers to anything. I remember the Jersey Shore. I wasn't paying really that much attention one way or the other to the show. And then there was a scene where the guy essentially punched the girl in the face or pushed something in her face or whatever at the bar. And I was like, holy shit, how can this be on television? This is, how can these people live with each other? And I got hooked into it a little bit. And that one scene, which as you know, you don't know if it was orchestrated or not because you never know in any show because you can be watching Duck Dynasty and think it's the greatest reality show on television and then you realize that your friend is the head writer on the show and there's 13 writers on the show and you're like, oh, so this is a sitcom meant to be a reality show. So I don't know what's orchestrated or not, but I do know that certainly created another million viewers. By the way, I, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, I believe that the Snooky Punch um, aired in promos only. And then I'm not sure, but I don't believe it ever actually made it into the episode. I'm not, or if it did, it only aired once and they edited it out. But it became such a viral sensation. It's the thing that made Jersey Shore explode. You've worked under a lot of different people in your career, and you've worked under people who walk down the hallway, and you're probably on eggshells, and you've worked with the people who have been best buds with you. When you're moving up through the ranks, what were the leader's qualities that you responded best to? And what were the ones that you responded least to you know i haven't had a tremendous number of bosses i've really worked at two places nbc and cmt 
Yeah, but when you were at NBC, I believe there were three different presidents. I think there were thing. five. Five, okay. Five different presidents. So I started NBC, and uh, Garth Ancier was the president. Scott Sasso was also there. Um, and we were in the specials department. Um, uh, it was, by the way, after working in scripted for years and years and years and finding that process too laborious. So I, I, did, I made the courageous decision to uh, jump to a network, once again, answer phones. Um, and uh, so you took sort of a little bit of a pay cut and a demotion to work at a place that you thought would be better for you. Um, I think I was actually just tired of reading scripts. Um, I worked, I, I should back up. Uh, I worked for writers, producers, and directors in the scripted space uh, at the beginning, beginning of my career. After I left Singled Out, I became an assistant at Sony for a writer named Pam Visay, who, um, you know, went on to become very prolific uh, runner, showrunner for Nash Bridges, uh, CSI New York. Uh, she's ama an amazing writer and a, a wonderful mentor. Um, I then moved uh, over and worked for a director named Rod Holcomb. Uh, uh, he's, he is a prolific director, uh, having directed the pilot episodes of ER, China Beach, Greatest American Hero, Scarecrow, Mrs. King, A-Team, Wise Guy. It just goes on and on and on. Um, and through that process... I learned to break story with the writer, and I learned to sort of see an episode through the eyes of a director. Um, but I also was in charge of, you know, reading scripts on a regular basis and then recommending projects up that we might want to develop as a company. Um, and I think at one point I looked and I had read like 3,000 scripts. Um, and I think I recommended, and I know this number is true because it sticks with me, I recommended 36 up out of the 3,000. And of the 36, um, I think six uh, actually got bought somewhere and we made zero pilots out of the, all of those scripts. So it was a pretty frustrating time and I wasn't getting a producer credit. Uh, and a friend of mine, the friend who actually gave me my first job as a production assistant on Singled Out was going over to NBC to work in the specials department. And he said, come along with me. And I said, I've been answering phones for like six years. I'm, I'm kind of tired of this. Um, and he said, I won't treat you like an assistant. Come on over. And true to his word, he did not treat me like an assistant. He included me right from the get-go. Um, and that happened to be very serendipitous because I landed at NBC three months before Survivor exploded on CBS. So ABC had Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? CBS blew, you know, hit it out of the park with, with Survivor. Uh, and we had nothing in development. So uh, we had to get going very, very quickly. Um, right around then, Garth Antier left. Jeff Zucker came in. He brought in Jeff Gaspin, who actually became, you know, the biggest mentor in my career. And I was just with Jeff last night, and he was a guest on the podcast as well. So, Yes, he's the one that I listened to. <laughs> that, and I also started listening to Gary Marshall this morning as well. What a man. I'm so sad about that. I'm so grateful that he chose to do the podcast and he was just so wonderful so many of my childhood memories have some connection to some production of gary marshall and for those of you who are only listening and only can listen which most everybody can only do that i should acknowledge that jason was looking upwards towards the sky when he was saying that a really wonderful moment so Jeff Gaspin became a mentor of yours. He did. I should have told him I was going to be with you this morning. I didn't do that. That was dumb. I'll call him on the way home. I'm I sure. could have gotten some good dirt on you. <laughs> he has some. I'm guarantee it. Damn it. Uh, there were many nights where I had to call Jeff and go, uh, I screwed up again. 
Um, anyhow, so to finish that story, I, I landed on a desk um, at the perfect time, and I was there at the perfect place um, after having answered phones for seven years. And I was sort of the last person that hadn't been given a shot, um, and Jeff gave me a shot. Uh, and, you know, it was, I was very lucky. How did the shot come about? Look, there were other people there. Why did that shot come about? What did you do? What was your part in it? And what was his part in it? Uh, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty, pretty good story. Um, when I started at NBC, there was uh, a, a program called the Associates Program. Um, and people from all over the country and all over the world can apply to be, to be an associate. And it's basically a junior executive role um, Thousands of people apply, and they usually pick four people total. So when I started, uh, they did away with that program. And uh, a year later, they brought it back, but they had only allowed, they only allowed the people that had previously applied uh, apply again, so I was not eligible. Um, they went through the process, picked the four associates. One of them was coming to our department, uh, and I had been shadowing shows, shepherding specials, little specials. Um, but you know, I was doing the job of an executive. Um, and so I got the courage up to one day walk down the hall and, you know, knock on Jeff's door. Now, how many times had you spoken to him a full sentence or two or three before that moment? Maybe five times, like, you know, maybe five to 10 times I had to, I had to take the notes in the staff meetings. So I was there, but I very rarely spoke. Um, Anyhow, I went in and I was super nervous. My voice cracked and I probably came very close to crying. And I, I made my plea that, uh, you know, I didn't think it was fair that this other person was coming in uh, to essentially, you know, be above me when I was doing the job. Uh, and, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, it's, these jobs are hard to get. You know, they, they take a while. And, uh, um, uh, but I agree that you've been doing the job. Um, let me see what I can do. And then I didn't hear another word and I went back to work. Um, he never mentioned it. And then three months later, he called me in and said, you're promoted. Um, and I find it fascinating. And I don't know if you talk about salaries on the show, but I, I, I love this story because, um, he said, your salary is $69,000 a year. And I said, great. Cause that was like 10 times more than I was making at the time. Um, and I said, well, how'd you settle on that number? He goes, because the associates make 68. So I gave you $1,000 more. <laughs> Which I was like, oh, I get it. All right, great. Thanks. <laughs> and when you first meet Jeff, he has this way about him. He's not the kind of guy like you walk into his office and you're like, I immediately want to hug this guy. It's the kind of thing where you walk in and you're like, okay, let me sit on this chair that's lower than you. And look up at you. That wow, couch, the, right? That couch where you just sit down on that couch and it's like, wait a second, I am much lower than this guy. Yeah. I mean, he is probably the best executive I have ever met. Um, he didn't bullshit around, but he, and he wasn't the warmest person, or, and he's still around, so he isn't the warmest person. But uh, you knew you were going to get a straight answer, and there was never going to be any sort of manipulation. Um, he wasn't trying to work an angle. Um, he was, and, and he also had the ability to be incredibly creative, which, you know, you didn't expect from a personality, um, of someone who is so direct. Uh, it, it was an amazing experience. And I will say, you know, he was so good to me that 
eight months after he promoted me to manager, he on his own called me in and promoted me to director. Um, and then I think it was about, it might've been a year later, he called me in and promoted me to vice president. So in the course of like a year and a half or two years, I went from answering phones to being a vice president at NBC. Um, and I, that's how I thought it worked. It was like amazing. For the rest of my career, I thought, wow, this is how it works. And now I realize uh, being in the position of having to make those choices um, about promotion and how hard and, and difficult it is to work with within a giant corporate structure to get those promotions pushed through. I, I, I realize now, man, that was unheard of. It was, it was a pretty fast uh, ascent and rise. And I'm, I'm very thankful to him for picking me. But he chose you because you did the job. Actions speak louder than words. And the people that were there at the time, obviously, for some reason, didn't garner his trust and made him feel safe, similarly to the producers that you talked about that you work with that you want to feel safe with. Uh, Jeff is... I mean, uh, for he actually is. He was a visionary. He was a guy who... He is a guy who takes risks in a way that most people wouldn't. I can give you another quick example. Um, when Jeff started, there were five scripted movies and miniseries executives under him. Um, and the reality TV boom, boom was taken off. And rather than replace the scripted executives, one by one, he gave them the opportunity to learn the unscripted business and make the transition from scripted to unscripted, believing that it's all characters and storytelling. And all of them not only had successful careers at NBC, but have gone on to bigger and better things. And that's not something you would see every day. That's fantastic. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Tell our audience how you have taken the principles of how Jeff Gaspin worked with you and promoted you and how at CMT you've been able to utilize some of the things that he showed you as an executive. <laughs> um, it's, this is another good one. So 
when I started at CMT, I was pretty green. Like I was, I was, I was the number two in the unscripted division at NBC, which meant I never had to say no. I got to just say yes. So I was always a champion for the producers and the agents that represent the producers, but I was never the one who was managing a budget, uh, who had to sort of make the difficult decisions of canceling shows or not moving forward with things. Um, and uh, so I could be an advocate the whole time I was at NBC. When I got to CMT and had to take that on, it was a bit overwhelming. I hadn't done it before, and I, you know, I don't like to hurt people's feelings, and I like to be liked. Um, so I invited Jeff out to lunch, and I was like, "This is a different gig," um, and he's like, "Yeah, it's very different." And I said, "What can I like give you a first look deal or a consultancy deal so I can just pick your brain all the time?" And he started talking, uh, and at the end of our two-hour lunch, I realized. I didn't have to pay him a consultancy fee because he couldn't not tell me or, or advise me or sort of be a mentor. So it was very funny. I rescinded the offer for an overall deal and uh, <laughs> and I said, I'll see you at lunch next week. <laughs> and we've been going to lunch quite often since. That's great. As I like to do, I like to go way, way back. So talk to me about the humble beginnings, where you grew up, what it was like, the socioeconomic times of your family and what was the first inspiration for you to ever want to be in the entertainment business? Um, okay, sure. Um, I was born in Massachusetts uh, and uh, my parents divorced quite young. Uh, my mother remarried and we relocated to Texas when I was 10. But now, did you see your dad often or you never saw him after that? We, we did not see him again. I should say I did not see him again until I was 16. Really? Yes. So we... We, we didn't have much of a relationship, but because my mother remarried so early, I, you know, my stepfather was, you know, uh, by default, my father. Um, but the first show I remember loving as a child, and it's weird, there's a picture somewhere of me laying in bed holding like one of those four inch black and white TVs. Um, and it was get smart. So I skipped over Sesame street in the electric company went right to live action, and maybe it appealed to me because it was so slapstick in, in its execution, but yeah, like I, that's the first show I remember, you know, just, just adoring you know, and having to watch every day. Don Adams, a Mel Brooks comedian. Yeah. Um, so we moved to Texas when I was 10, and um, I was an A student. I was a very, very good student, um, and when we got to high school, uh, it just so happened like the most popular kids also happened to be the athletes. So um, in our year, um, and they were also the smartest kids. So we were in advanced classes. So these, there's like 35 people that I really hung out with uh, from sixth grade all the way through high school. Um, and, and, and because of that, I had a very sort of sheltered environment. I wasn't exposed to, to too many things. Um, and I watched a lot of television. Like, that was it. I thought when I moved to L.A. that I would meet people that watched as much television as I did as a kid. And it didn't take long for me to realize that just wasn't true. There just weren't as many people that could, you know, that, that could literally list the episodes of Little House on the Prairie in order. Um, you know, the 183 episodes or something. And I, I could pretty much go down the list of, of you know, how they, how they aired. And weirdly, um, there was one person in L.A. who was a vice president of casting at NBC when I was a coordinator. Uh, his name was Jeff Meschel. And I think he's still in the industry. Of course. Wonderful. 
Um, and he had so many video cassette tapes of shows in his office that we bonded over our sort of love of television. Um, and before there was, there were DVRs, um, I used to have two VCRs and I would like watch one and record on another. And then when I would go to bed, say if it was a real world marathon and I went to sleep, I would set the VCR to continue recording the episodes. Um, and then when I got up the next day, I would watch them. And then when I caught up, I would watch the other tape. I wish I had that knowledge of the VCR. Basically, I just had a $400 clock in my living room. I just never knew how to figure <laughs> it out. So going back, uh, during high school, um, I, I became uh, part of a local church group. Um, you know, it was a Bible Belt. Well, was your family well off? No, we were not well off. Um, I would say we were lower middle class. Um, my my stepfather was a, a district sales manager at 7-Eleven. My mother was a manager at, uh, at one of the stores of 7-Eleven. Is that how they met? No, they met, they met years and years before, actually. Uh, my stepfather was my father's best friend. So I guess my mother and my stepfather uh, connected either before or after my parents got divorced, and that's still unclear to this day. That won't add to friendly feelings and the... Uh... <laughs> And your father uh, wanting to come and visit. Right. There you go. Um, so, no, I think we were pretty low, lower class, um, um, but we always had a television. Uh, and I watched it, like, religiously. Uh, from the minute I got up, I would watch the snow, and then I'd see the color bars, and then the American flag would play, and the, the national anthem, and then whatever cartoon happened to be on at 6 a.m., I would watch that until I had to go to school. And then after school... I would come home and turn the TV on, and I would I would stay there until ten o'clock at night. And that was you're like my kids. Yes, I mean I I you know I I also played sports and did other things, but the majority of my time was you know sort of escaping into other worlds. So then you're a teenager, and what's going on, and how does it move forward to college? And um, sure. So I I in high school, like I said, there was this sort of core group of friends that I had. Um, and they all went to church. It was the Bible Belt, you know, it was the South. So um, they invited me. I went. I was moved. Um, I became fairly religious for a while. So I ended up going to a weekend retreat with some friends. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a spiritual retreat, a religious retreat, Southern Baptist Convention. And um, I decided I wanted to be a part of this. I wanted, you know, this to be sort of my surrogate family because my home life wasn't that spectacular. So I, I bought into it and I signed up. And after high school, um, and I became a leader in, in, in the youth group. Um, and after high school, I was, I mean, right before high school, right, sorry, right before I left high school, um, my youth minister asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I don't know. And he goes, well, you know, you're, you're, you're pretty good at leading this group. Have you ever thought about going into the ministry? Um, and I said, no, I really hadn't. He goes, well, here's a pamphlet for a college if you'd like to, you know, think about it. And it was a Bible college. And so I sent in the application I got in. I never visited the school. Um, and the first time I stepped, uh, first time I went, went to college was the first time I stepped on campus. Like that was the first, my first experience. I didn't visit it in advance. And uh, so, yeah, I went to school. And I went to school to be a minister um, and then quickly realized that um, it wasn't for me. Um, when, and this is going to get deep, and I don't know how much of this you want to keep, but when you're an impressionable young person, um, you know, who has sort of a troubled background, you 
sort of search for things to grasp onto and a powerful orator telling you things that, you know, a powerful orator can move you. Um, and that's really what happened to me. And uh, so I joined the church and was very, very happy there, but it became a real big part of my life. Um, when I went to college, uh, they said, why do you believe what you believe? And I said, because, you know, I have this faith. It's all based on faith. And the professors there were like, well, we're going to break that down and we're going to build your belief on a foundation of knowledge. Um, and fortunately or unfortunately, when they, when, when they broke that down, I began to question why my religion was better than anyone else's religion. Was I a product of my environment or was it something I truly believed in? Um, so I was still a, a ministry major, um, but I sort of shifted my focus more towards philosophy of religion and philosophy of world religions. Um, and I say all of that to say, as a programmer, it's been extremely helpful to know um, and to understand how huge swaths of this country um, believe and what they believe and why they believe. Um, so it's actually made me a, a better programmer, I believe. You said when you have a troubled past, what does that mean for you? What was your troubled past? I, I should clarify. I was a very good kid. Like I didn't have a drop of alcohol until I was 22 years old. Um, so uh, I just had uh, you know, a very chaotic uh, childhood, a very chaotic home life. Um, and so I had to fend for myself very early. Um, and I think that's probably why I escaped um, into television, into different worlds. It was just an easy, it was just the easiest and most available um, um, uh, opportunity to sort of get out of the mindset that I was, or I should say the living situation that I was currently in. I think what's interesting, you said right away in the church group, you were a leader. Do you think that you're either born a leader or you're not, or do you feel somebody who's not really a leader in the early years can become a great leader? I think all, I think it, all of that could be true. I think there are certain personality traits that sort of lend yourself, uh, lend themselves to uh, become traits of leaders in general. And, uh, you know, I often think, well, if I weren't doing this, what if I just wanted to go be, become sort of a, a hippie surfer guy and, you know, play the ukulele and, you know, you know chill out. Um, and I have a feeling that if I, if I went to do that, uh, I would probably become uh, I'd probably be very judgmental and I would have many opinions about the way the surfers are surfing and maybe we should surf this direction and do that and you're not playing your ukulele correctly. I would, I would become the best greeter at Walmart if I was a Walmart greeter. Um, so uh, yeah, I think there are certain traits that make leaders leaders, but I do believe you can grow your skill set and, and, and change your destiny if you want to. And I think you have to really want something, especially this industry. You... you you, you, really, uh, you really have to have not only passion, but they're, they're, you have to be incredibly persistent, and you actually really have to have thick skin. Um, most of my friends today are friends that I came up with in the industry, and we were the survivors. We just lasted longer than anyone else, and then eventually there was an opportunity, and you, know, you have to make good when you get that opportunity, but... Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really the, the thing that stands out. So you're in college, you're studying these majors that will qualify you to drive 
any Uber in California, <laughs> how do you make the transition to the entertainment business? So after college, um, I was wondering what I wanted to do. I thought about law school. Uh, I moved to Mesquite with my best friend, uh, Mesquite, Texas. Um, and there were a couple things that happened. One is there was this wonderful show called My So-Called Life that came on the air that year. It had 19 episodes, not a long run. But it was the first show that I thought portrayed teenage life um, as, as real as it was in reality. Um, and then it was so beautiful, the show itself, um, that I actually like took the time to write down who the writer was. I mean, our, the director was, and this guy named Scott Winant, who's very prolific today. And I remember that it was the first time I noticed direction in a television show that, um, you know, normally if you notice the direction, it's pulling you out of the story. It was the first time I noticed direction in a television show that I thought added to the story. It was one of the first times I noticed in a television show, and obviously it's been done a million times, that very basic technique where the camera just moves into a person's face very, very slowly during the monologue to the point where, let's say, it's a 45-second monologue or 30-second. It'll start like maybe at their waist, to the top of their head, and then by the end, it's just tight on their face and their expression, and it really hit you on that particular show. I could never understand why that show never went the distance. I blame Ted Harbert. He's the one who canceled it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, uh, Another example of that would be in his direction... Um, and I agree, by the way, it was, I got so sucked into the world and I felt like I knew these characters and they were my friends. Um, and, um, and, uh, the use of transitions were so powerful. He would literally just move the camera to the side and then the, the, the he would pass a wall. And then when you're on the other side of the wall, you were in a new location and in a new scene, it was just really poignant and really, really, really art artistic. Anyhow. I loved it. And it was the first time that, you know, I really was paying close attention to the medium um, instead of just enjoying it or escaping in it. So I, I, the point of that story was none of my friends un appreciated the show for its artistic value or even its storytelling. You know, Marshall Herskovitz, Ed Zwick, um, Winnie Holtzman. Like, I actually really tried to study it and none of my friends related. They just wanted to drink beer and, you know, go to bars. Um, and then a movie came out that summer as well, Pulp Fiction, which was just, just an, you know, a, a, a groundbreaking, a truly groundbreaking idea, execution. Uh, I mean, and, and it moved me so much that those two things in tandem, and I, I don't know anyone else who would say, I, I moved to LA because of Pulp Fiction and my so-called life, <laughs> but those two things together sort of made me helped me make the decision that that I should just head west so I had $300 and a 1986 Acura Integra and I, I just I drove west uh, I had one friend who was at Pepperdine Law School um, and she let me stay with her uh, and, and about a week later she said I'm going back to Texas to do a clerkship she was in law school and uh, so you can't stay here and I was like oh great I have no money I don't have a job um, and, uh, I don't have anywhere to stay. Um, but I met one person and he was a former student at UC, uh, USC. Um, so I went to USC, found the fraternity row, crashed a frat party. 
Uh, and then when everybody went to sleep, I, you know, moved into an empty room and I lived there for three months, became friends with them. Some of them are still my best friends. Um, but it was just very funny. It was like out of necessity. Like I couldn't go home. So I, I, I was homeless for three months, I guess you'd say. And what did you have going into the room? Did you just have a backpack with a few clothes? Well, there was a mattress in the room. So I guess what happens at these universities, um, you know, I was 22, so I fit, I fit right in. They thought I was just another college student. Um, but when the summer break happens, they rent the rooms out in these fraternity houses and sorority houses to students who are staying for summer school. So they just thought I was another student. Uh, so I was hanging out with them, drinking beers, having a great time. Uh, and by the time they caught me, uh, I had gotten a job as a waiter in Malibu, of all places. Um, and uh, they said, you can stay, uh, but you have to start paying rent. Uh, and by then, I got my first apartment and uh, a job. And I was here to stay. Awesome. What's the next step? Uh, the next step was I was waiting tables at Gladstone's in Malibu. Of course. Sunset and PCH. Yeah. My friend was waiting tables uh, at the Century City New York stage deli at the time. It's not there now. Uh, he was also at the frat house. And he said that um, a person that he had waited on had invited him to a Hollywood party. Uh, and would I, would I like to go? Uh, and I said, sure. And so we went. Um, and sure enough, like it was a true Hollywood party. Um, what is a true Hollywood party? There were celebrities, and, and it, it was an amazing experience. Okay, so I, I won't name names, but um, this friend of mine uh, uh, says to me, um, do, would you like to go to this party? And I said, yes. He goes, but the, the guy that invited me, I, I think he might be gay, and um, <laughs> I think he might be hitting on me. And I was like, who cares? Let's go. Let's go to the party. Uh, we, we need to meet some folks. So we did, and I met this gentleman, and... I'm not kidding. Two minutes after I met him, we walked around the corner in the backyard and uh, he only knew my name. And he said, hi, um, David, I would like for you to meet my friend, Jason. Uh, and it was David Geffen. And then I think I'm, I'm, I might get this wrong, but I'm pretty sure um, he said something like, I'd like you to meet my friend Madonna. And then um, like 30 seconds later, uh, Brian Singer came up who had just hit it big with the usual suspects. So it was just a super surreal moment. Like I, I never met anybody in my life and all of a sudden I'm meeting like the most important people in the world. Um, uh, and I happened to even be able to recognize him. Like I knew who Brian Singer was. That's how much I was paying attention. Um, and anyhow, that night I met uh, um, uh, a soap opera actress and a television star and we became very good friends. Um, and I moved in with the soap star just as friends. Uh, and we ran around Hollywood for the next few years. And I, my network got bigger. My relationships got stronger. Um, and then I got the job on Singled Out. Um, and then didn't get it the second cycle. And then I worked at Sony, then Paramount, then 20th Century Fox, then Warner Brothers, um, and then NBC. And now CMT. So when you were at N NBC, there were so many transitions. So many presidents, so many people working over you. So many people got fired. People you were in the trenches with. Just one day, they're there. The next day, they're holding their banker's box with the plant coming out of it. How do you deal with that mentally, knowing that any day you could be the one that gets taken out? The reason why I'm asking that 
when you were in the craft service job, you did a fucking great job. You didn't get asked back. So here are your friends and some that aren't your friends, but a lot of different people, some who seemingly have more experience than you getting their ass handed to them on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. How do you go to work every day knowing you could be next? Well, normally that was above my pay grade, right? So at, at my level at NBC, you know, as long as you did a really good job, you generally got to stay. Um, it was the folks above that were playing, you know, the um, executive, you know, um, musical chairs. The, there are a couple of things you really have to know in this industry, and it takes a little while. Um, you, you really have to realize that having a job at a network, at a studio, it's wonderful. But it's also temporary. Um, and uh, people are really pitching the chair more than they're pitching a person. Right? So if I, if I get replaced tomorrow, someone else is going to fill my chair. And you know, they're still going to need content. Producers are still going to want to provide content. They're going to come in and pitch the chair. Um, the relationships you build really do help mitigate that and manage that. But you know, if you go into these jobs thinking that you are truly an individual um, and you let your ego get bigger and bigger, there's a real chance that you'll find yourself head to the door pretty quickly. Like it's, it also is soul crushing. Like if you allow your, your entire self-worth to be, you know, I was the guy that, you know, greenlit deal or no deal. Um, boy, that's, that would be a tough way to live. You really do need to fill everything in your life out with, 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 with other interests uh, or, or it will, it'll, it'll overtake you. It'll overwhelm you. So what you're saying is, is that God forbid you go to work today and you sit down at your desk and then somebody from above you and human resources comes in and says, listen, we're making some changes. We're sorry. You're going to go home this weekend and you're going to know in your heart that you will always work and you will find another thing as good or better than where you are now. No way. Um, when I left NBC, I thought I would never work again. I think I thought that was it. I was like, all right, I had a great run. It was fun. I had 10 years of uh, sort of being a part of the best time in the unscripted reality world in the history of television, but I never thought I'd find another gig. I really thought it was over. Um, and so I, I was sitting on my couch um, pretending I was going to create the next great format you know, in PowerPoint, even though I didn't know how to use PowerPoint, and I don't even think I had it on my computer. Um, and I spent a lot of time just sort of wondering what was next. And uh, talking to folks about, um, you know, partnering up as producers and, um, but it was, it, it, it can be a pretty dark thing because it really can get to you when you are in the chair. Uh, your phone rings 300 times a day. You get 300 emails, you send 300 emails. Um, people, that's not to mention the 12 pitch meetings you have where people come in and they're, sharing their dreams and their ideas for, you know, for, for new programming and you get to make the call. 
So you can be affected by that. Most people are. Um, and when it's taken away from you, uh, I was warned that it was going to be difficult, but I don't think you ever get prepared for how scary that can become because your phone just immediately stops ringing. Nobody sends you an email. Uh, you don't have an office to go to. Nobody's there. There's no meetings. You have to be active and generate anything that's going to happen for you. Um, and fortunately for me, uh, a headhunter called um, and this CMT gig was open. And I honestly believe I got the job for two reasons. One, I wasn't sure I wanted it. So I was very comfortable during the interview process. Um, and by the third interview, I really wanted it. And the president of the channel said, well, put pen to paper. Just tell us what you would do. So I, I went home and wrote my Jerry Maguire manifesto, and I had some friends rewrite it because I'm a terrible writer. Um, and then I edited it one last time, and I sent it over. Um, and he called me the next day and said, we'd like to hire you. And when I had conversations with him, with the president of the channel after that, he said, you did the homework. You actually put in the effort to get the gig. Um, and so it's yours. And it's been six years. What's interesting is it goes back to your roots where you were putting the homework in watching television unknowingly that you could remember 182 episodes of Little House on the Prairie and which ones they said, let's blind another child so we can get the ratings. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, my mother always said, Jason, stop watching TV. And this is another funny story. So uh, Little House on the Prairie was my favorite show when I was a kid. Obviously, like, I didn't realize that I was escaping into it, but man, I... Half Pint was my first real crush. Um, you walk, you work the Gladstones right next to the new Dan Blocker Beach. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, they dedicated a yeah. little beach to Hoss. I know. Wow. Who, I did died, not know that. Who died prematurely. Exactly. If that's a word to say you died prematurely. Prematurely? Well, less than, sooner than we would have liked. Um, so I, I watched a lot of television, and uh, my mother decided one day she was going to mother and said, you're only allowed to watch two hours of TV a day. So I had to be very strategic about what, two hours. Um, but then I, and, and what she did to enforce that was she cut the end of the plug off, <laughs> right? So when, when I got to watch TV, she would connect it and I could plug it back in, which is totally a fire hazard, but whatever. That's what we did. Um, and, uh, and then she took the plug away when she was, you know, out at dinner with her friends or whatever. But whenever she wasn't there, I cut the plug off of the alarm clock in the bedroom <laughs> and would connect it and watch more television. So that's, that's, yeah. So I was very, and I had to be like four or five years old, uh, you know, five or six years old at the most, but I, I had figured out a way to get my fix no matter what. You'd think for your kids, they'd invent this thing that right where the plug is, where it does just plug in, but you can unplug the plug and take the plug and do whatever. <laughs> so I could do that with my kids as opposed to them watching American dad for 76 straight hours. <laughs> That's a great story. The guy said you did the research. And I always look at things like if you're out there and you want to get a gig and you know there's other people up for the gig, one of the things that nobody knows, you don't know what the other guy's doing. Unless you have a video camera and a bug on that person, sometimes you don't even know who your competition is going to be. You always have to figure out and anticipate, well, what would the other people do and how can I best that by a hundred percent? What can I do that they're not going to do? You know, are they going to put five hours into this presentation or are they going to put 10? If they do, I got to put 20 in. 
I got to write the greatest letter in the world. And letters and emails don't reflect tone. So you've got to rewrite it and write it again and have fresh eyes look at it. And that's what you did. And to me, that's the only way to get a job. Today in the job market, a lot of the people that work here and the assistants and the interns, every single job you have to apply to online. A lot of the kids who work here say, yeah, I applied online for like 100 jobs. I said, that's great because you're not going to get 100 jobs. (laughs) You're not going to get anything. You're not going to get a gig online. You got to reach these people another way. You got to figure out how to reach them another way. No, but it says this is the only way I'm supposed to do it online. I always say, pretend that your family is being held hostage and you get the call from that unrecognized guy who took your family hostage and he says, if you don't get this application in their hand by Friday, (laughs) your family is done. And if you do that, you're going to get it. And what I always suggest is this. Find the name of the human resource person somehow, some way. Well, how can I do that? It's not online. I can't find it. How am I going to know? Whatever. Well, why don't you go up to the desk like a messenger or something and say, hey, um, I have this package for human resources, but I can't really read the name of the person here. Do you know the name of the person in the human resources department? I can write it in here and give it to you. And then you have the information you have or figure out another way. And then I always say this is that go to FedEx and do something that lacks a little bit of integrity. Take 20 FedEx envelopes and 20 billing slips and write them out and take magic markers and make it look like it's a FedEx and then put your cover letter in that you've rewritten and rewritten a hundred times, and then go to the front desk of the company and say, hey, yeah, I work uh, two doors down. This FedEx came, it belongs to this person here. Because everyone opens a FedEx, and you will figure out how to get the people, and then your family will survive. You know, I'll I'll give you one more story, because it's, it's in this world. So my second job was uh, as assistant to a writer who had a deal at Sony. Her name's Pam Vizet. Um, and uh, I didn't know her. A, a friend of mine got me an interview. I showed up. Uh, there were a few of us in waiting chairs. Um, she wasn't there. She was late. Phone was ringing. Phone was ringing. She's still not there. She's still not there. I decide I'm going to pick up the phone. I get up. I pick up the phone, and it's her. Um, and she's very pregnant at the time. And she's say, she was saying that she's not feeling well enough to come in. You know, she's very close to having her baby. Um, so she's not going to make it in today. Um, but, you know, um, so could you please let everybody know? And by the way, if you'd like, you can have the job. And I got the job because I answered the phone. So I'm the one that got up, took the initiative, grabbed the phone. Um, and I'm sure those, those, the, the other uh, uh, candidates, I've probably run into 10 times at this point in my career, but I, I, I wish I knew who they were because it was such a, it was a really great moment where I was like, I got the job because I answered the phone. Unbelievable. Okay, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Maybe there's a story. Maybe there's something behind it. Maybe you don't even know the people, but I'm going to mention these and then you tell me something that comes to mind. Howie Mandel. Well, here's my best Howie Mandel story. So uh, we bought Deal or No Deal. I took a pitch. I really liked it. Um, I, I played the game. I was totally you know, engaged, and I could see sort of how it could create um, 
uh, uh, an audience who are like fighting and trying to make decisions uh, for, at home as well as, you know, in the studio. Uh, so we took it upstairs. We bought five episodes that day. Uh, we went out and made the show. Um, and then uh, I screened it for some folks and it didn't go, didn't go very well. Like some people thought it was good. Some people thought there's no show here. There's no game. You can't play along. You're just watching people op open boxes. Um, and, but I really believed in it. Uh, and so I said, I really want to schedule this over the course of one week. I really think we should so that we can build momentum. We'll cliffhang the episode at the end before we open a case and we'll say, we'll find out tomorrow. Um, and that it had worked elsewhere in, in, in the world. Um, and I said, but I need an, I need an entire week, uh, you know, at the same time in prime time. Um, and I got a lot of pushback. They were like, no way. We're like, we're not going to preempt all of our hit shows for you to have a week at 8 p.m. for this idea. Um, and it wasn't just me. It was everybody involved. But, um, but I really wanted it. So I kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing. And finally, they said, all right, fine. You can have the week of Christmas. And, and I was like, great. And they were like, you know, nobody watches television that week, right? Like everybody's with their family. Everybody's in repeats. You know, like, but good luck. Go ahead. And I was like, great. I'll take it. And so... Uh, I, well, we, we scheduled it. I went to New York. Um, I sat in the control room while we broadcast. Uh, I woke up, you know, on Tuesday morning and it rated pretty well. And then on Tuesday it rated even better. And on Wednesday it rated even better. And I got a call saying, uh, are we, we got something here. This is, this is great. How quickly can you get it back? And I was like, it's going to take like two months. And I think, uh, the boss at the time said, yeah, you have four weeks, like get it on the air. <laughs> so we did, we got it done, but it was great because there was a sort of void, um, in the marketplace where people did want to watch television, but nobody assumed they did. And, and I remember from my own experience, I was like, when I spend that much time with my family at Christmas, by like the third day, I'm out of things to talk about. So I'm looking for things to do. So Deal or No Deal was sort of an opportunity. And uh, it all worked out really well. I think at, some, at one point we were on like four times a week. When you did the pilot presentation, who was the host? We never did a pilot. We did five episodes. So he was always there. He was always the host. I, I mean, we tested a bunch of people, but he was always the host. The, the, my favorite Howie Mandel story, and I, you have to understand, I love Howie Mandel, um, as you do too. Uh, he's just one of the most amazing people, one of the most gracious people, one of the kindest people, um, and passionate. Like, you know, he doesn't have to be passionate anymore, and he's still super passionate. Absolutely. Anyhow, we got him approved as the host. Um, but they weren't excited about it, because at the time, Howie wore a lot, of, a lot of earrings, and he had a lot of, you know, jewelry on his hands, and, you know, he looked a little like Mr. Clean. Um, uh, and, and you know, not quite ready for primetime host at that time and era. Um but but he was amazing. We knew he could handle theater in the round. That's why we built the set that way. We knew he could uh, manage the game, um, and we knew he could be funny. Uh, and we wanted we wanted to create sort of a variety esque environment for that show. When he came out on that show, he came out with a whole different brand and persona than anybody had ever seen him before. He came out with a persona that wasn't huggable and lovable. It was more like this very unapproachable kind of person. Was that something he pitched to you? Did you pitch that to him, or did you both come up with that together? Uh, the original creator of the format itself, Dick Derek, uh, worked very closely with Howie, and they together came up with this sort of persona. It's a master of ceremonies where you're rooting for the contestant to win as much money as possible, but at the same time, you know, the you're, you're sort of tempting them to to not take the money and play the risk. Um, I think it 
traumatized Howie when people stayed in the game longer than they should have. Um, I, I could see it in his eyes that he just was like, just take the money. Um, and again, I think it's because he's such a, a kind human. Um, but to finish my Howie story. So, uh, <laughs> so Howie likes to wear his earrings. He, he, he's a little superstitious. He wants to feel very comfortable. This is a big show. Uh, it's on broadcast. It's network. It's prime time. Um, and we have to get his wardrobe approved. And I was like, we got we to gotta tell him he can't wear the rings and he's got to take the earrings out. Um, and the producer's like, he's never going to do it. Like that's his, you know, that's who he is. And it's, it makes him feel secure. Um, and I don't know if any of this is true, by the way, he, he, maybe he would have, but, um, I had to get the wardrobe approved. So I said, all right, I said to the producer, all right, get all of the models, put them in their dresses, get them on stage and put Howie in the middle and take one picture of the entire cast. Um, but make it a good picture. So Howie's standing in the middle. He's surrounded by 26 models and matching dresses. Um, and uh, they sent me the picture, and I sent it upstairs, and I said, here's the wardrobe for the show. Do you guys have any problem with it? And they were like, no, this is great. Fine, go with it. And then, of, of course, Howie's wearing his earrings and the rings in the picture, but nobody noticed because they were just looking at the beautiful models around him, <laughs> and we got it approved, and that's why Howie... And then once it was a hit, it didn't matter. I Like, he could do whatever he wanted. One thing I want to ask you about this show, I never quite understood how you figured this out at NBC. When you pitch a show, and right before it goes into production, there's this back and forth three months to two months beforehand, you're not going to get a green light until you lock the budget down. And you have to have the budget, and the budget has to be approved. Deal or no deal, one show, somebody could win $100,000. Another show, somebody could win $7. But you have no idea what the prize money is going to be at the end of the five days. How do you build that into a budget and sell the show knowing that on a fluke, somebody could win the million bucks? bucks. How do you build that into the budget and get it approved? So we hired an actuary to create an algorithm. This is going to sound weird. To actually uh, come up with all of the possibilities of payouts and what the average would be per game. Um, And the average was $160,000. It was like between 160 and 180. Um, And... Uh, and so we built that into the budget. We knew that on average, if we did enough episodes, that would be what we would have to pay out. Um, what, what we really wanted was for someone to win the million dollars because then, you know, that would take the show and it would put it into the stratosphere. Somebody won the million dollars. Um, so we came up with a plan to add, uh, replace, I should say the next lowest level, um, winning amount with a million dollars. So it was, you know, all the way from a dollar down to a million. And the second was 750, then 500, 400, 300 on down. So when no one won the million, the next day we would replace the 750 with a million. And then if no one won, the, you'd have two one millions and we'd replace the 500 with a million. And it got all the way to the point where we had the entire right side of the board at a million dollars. And the left side of the board was still from one to whatever, 100,000. One in two chance of one in a million dollars. We didn't give it away. <laughs> nobody, nobody won, even at that point. And we reset, started over. But I just couldn't believe that we got all the way to the point of a one in two chance and the person didn't win the million dollars. Couldn't believe it. Kelly Pickler. I love Kelly Pickler. Yeah. Um, so 
I've been chased. I, 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 I chased Kelly Pickler from the minute I took this gig. I thought, man, she is so funny and she sort of transcends not just um, um, uh, media, but not, and not just music, but she's sort of, she's everywhere. She's, you know, she's on Ellen on a regular basis. Um, and this was six years ago. I was like, Kelly, let's do a reality show. Let's, let's follow you. We'll make a reality sitcom. And, um, and, and she wasn't ready to do that at that, at that point. Um, and then five years later, I was still pitching and, uh, uh, and she still didn't want to do it. And then Ryan Seacrest, uh, finally convinced her to take a shot and they pitched the show to us and we bought it straight to series right out of the gate. And, um, and the show was a huge success. So, uh, we never envisioned the show to be a docu follow that would, um, sort of play on, um, elements and themes that have worked in other docu follows. There's, there's no infighting, there's no cat fighting that it's not dark. Um, but that normally translates into no ratings. Right. How many reality shows can you name docu-reality shows where there's no conflict and it gets ratings? Exactly. But we really believed that Kelly was funny, um, comedic. Everything we've ever seen her in, she's very Lucille Ball-esque. Um, and so we actually fashioned the show to be a reality sitcom where Kelly would get in over her head and her husband would come in to save the day. But at the end of the episode, you kind of realize Kelly's odd point of view was actually right. Um, and she was right all along. Um, and it premiered and it did really well for us. And the second season premieres this August. And she's sort of become an ambassador for the channel. Um, uh, and, you know, it really worked out for us. Steve Austin. Another one that I tried to get on the channel for a very long time. Uh, first of all, um, I grew up loving WWE. Um, and at NBC, we, uh, as part of the deal when WWE went to USA, uh, NBC was required to, not required, but NBC got the option to air like four or five specials a year, Saturday night's main event, which was an old WWE brand. And because I was a young executive, it sort of fell to me to be in charge of it, um, which meant you're not really doing anything. It's WWE. They just delivered the show. They're, they're very good at producing their, their, their content. Um, but somebody has to manage it. So that was me. Anyhow, um, I'd been a fan of Steve's for a very long time. I wanted to do sort of um, a, a CMT version of Survivor, right? Or a, a MTV's The Challenge. Um, and I really wanted to have someone in the, we I should say we, the network. We really wanted to have someone in the host role who was a big enough name for our fan base that they would actually bring viewers to our channel. Cause we were, you know, we didn't have a lot going on back then. And so I pursued Steve very hard and he did not want to do it. Not at all. Um, and, uh, eventually by being tenacious, he agreed to do it. Um, and then it was so successful. We did five seasons. Um, and then our relationship with him expanded. Uh, he had an idea for a television show, uh, about a tough man competition that takes place on his ranch. We developed it out, made a pilot, and and we were very careful with this show to, to make something of such quality from um, not just execution, but from a, from a look and a tone and a feel. And I, I'm very proud to say that Steve Austin's Broken Skull Challenge won the DGA Award this past year for Best Reality Show. Uh, so great company. It was The Revenant, 
uh, you know, for feature. It was Veep for comedy. It was Jimmy Fallon for, you know, variety. It was Game of Thrones for a scripted drama. And then Steve Austin's Broken Skull Challenge for a reality show. So that was, that was a great moment when that happened. And was your persistence that got him on the channel. Uh, yes, and now he's like, now he's definitely a part of our family and we love him and, you know, he's had a great deal of success and we're very, very appreciative to have him. Sometimes when you're like me and you're constantly just a fly just coming at you all the time, might not be every week, might be once a month, might be once every three months, you get those emails. When somebody else is being persistent with you, are you like, oh, Jesus Christ almighty, will this guy fucking stop? Or is it like, I respect his persistence? Sometimes uh, the being that persistent really pays off, and other times, uh, not so much. Um, and I can't fault the person who's being persistent because they don't they don't know what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling at that moment or what I'm experiencing or what I'm involved in or what's pulling my focus away from you know giving them a response. Um, so good for them for being persistent. It's it's on me for being judgmental about that persistence. Dolly Parton. <laughs> I've been chasing Dolly Parton for years as well. Um, I'm so jealous of the success that NBC had with Code of Many Colors last year, uh, and they're doing a sequel right now. Um, I think we should, uh, I mean, first of all, she is sort of the, the most amazing talent, one of the most amazing talents ever, and the fact that she's not just a country music star. She has transcended every area of the business to become a, 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 a superstar. Um, so I would love nothing more than to to find a project to do with Dolly, and we've been we've been talking to some folks who have some real strong relationships with her. Um, and quite honestly, uh, whatever she wants to do, if she wants to do, we're doing uh, a cooking special from her house for Christmas. I'll buy ten episodes tomorrow. <laughs> like she, whatever you want to do, Dolly, come to CMT. Willie Nelson. <laughs> um, wow. Another icon, right? Just a just a, a brilliant, brilliant musician and human. Um, we were fortunate enough to do a special uh, last year uh, around Willie's birthday, um, and you know, talk about an opportunity for us to just say, "Who wants to come?" And everybody showing up. I mean, that's that's someone who who we love, and we'll we'll, we'll again one of those people. What do you want to do, Willie? <laughs> sure, we'll do it. Burt Reynolds. We started a documentary division a few years ago. Um, and uh, the idea behind it was, you know, let's, let's try some more sophisticated storytelling and see how the audience reacts. Uh, we think they'll be there. We think they'll jump on. But, um, you know, let's test the waters before we do this giant scripted initiative. Uh, and so we started a docs division. Um, and my sort of direction to my team was, you know, do stuff that people are going to enjoy, like do big, broad ideas that are entertaining. You know, we'll use the film as a lead in. It'll rate fine. Um, but, you know, don't, you know, don't create something that nobody's going to watch. That's so esoteric. And thankfully, they didn't listen to me at all. Like they, they said, no, we're not going to do that. And they went out and they made real films. So what was arguably with Burt Reynolds, we did um, this documentary called The Bandit, The Bandit. And um, what was, you know, perceived as the behind-the-scenes making of Smokey and the Bandit turned into a real film. Um, it's, it's really a love story between Bert and uh, his best friend slash director slash stuntman, Hal Needham. And 
and they, and it's it's an amazing film. Like we watched it and we thought this is this is really good. Um, we submitted it to some festivals. South by Southwest, you know, responded said they'd love to have us there. Uh, uh, we said great, and they booked us in a three hundred seat theater. Um, and then they announced that the film was was going to premiere there. Uh, and the, the demand was so great, they moved us to a 3,000-seat theater. Um, and then the demand was so great that they had to schedule three showings. Um, so that documentary, and because it is truly a film and it's not just fluff, um, you know, it really put us on the map in terms of um, street cred with the best filmmakers in the world. Um, the town realizes that we will pay the money necessary to make a real, or I should say invest the money necessary to produce a real film. Um, and we have had quite a bit of success. Um, that film and another film uh, have been on the festival circuit for the past year, and you know, you know, we're just really excited. And what we thought was true proved to be true. Uh, they rated through the roof. The first three were seen by like 20, 22 million viewers or something like that. To answer your question about Bert, he, um, he showed up, he was there, he was a part of... Uh, the after the after show panel, and he still got it. I believe uh, I believe several bras uh, brasiers were thrown his <laughs> way during the uh, after show panel. Ryan Seacrest. Um, I'm so thankful to know Ryan and to count him as a friend. Talk about someone who. So when I met Ryan, he was working for NBC, um, doing movie wraparounds from Universal City Walk. Um, for our Saturday night movie on the channel. Uh, and then the next thing you know, he's hosting American Idol. And the next thing you know, he is, you know, Dick Clark. And the next thing you know, he's like Michael Eisner. Like he is, he's Walt Disney, I should say. Like he has really one of the sharpest minds of anyone you will ever meet. And I'm, I still to this day don't, know how he can juggle all of these things all of the things that he does and actually be present in a meeting and when he shows up he is absolutely present he is there i remember when i had a finale of american idol and dane cook was invited to be somebody performed on the finale and i'm there and they're doing the rehearsal right before the live show there's a stage manager just walking through his lines through the whole thing i asked the executive producer one of them Where, where's ryan uh he doesn't he doesn't come until about 30 minutes beforehand i'm like what this is a live show for like 30 million people yeah that's that's the way it works huh so I'm just walking around. You know, sometimes you get an all-access pass. You can walk around them. I remember I was standing behind the monitors where the teleprompter was. I remember texting and looking at my phone. And all of a sudden, I just heard this unintelligible. Okay, move it up. Okay. And I looked behind me, and Ryan Seacrest has just leaned over with the teleprompter guy. Went through the whole show. Okay. Thanks. And it just went out into <laughs> live broadcast like Quite possibly the greatest host of live television ever. Like just <laughs> and just amazing. Incredible, right? Very jealous of his ability to do public speaking. We should have him on the podcast. That's right. <laughs> if he had time. Donald Trump. Wow. I wondered if you were gonna say that. I I really did. Hmm. Let me think about this for a second. Um 
I was not the executive on The Apprentice. I was not in the room when that show was pitched to Jeff Zucker and Jeff Gaspin. But I was very much a part of the team that thought, at that point, whatever Mark Burnett wanted to do, everybody was going to buy. Like, Survivor was a giant. Um, and he came in and pitched an idea to Jeff and Jeff. Um, I don't, it wasn't even a fully formed idea at that point. I think it was just like Survivor in the jungle of Manhattan or something like that. And I, and they bought it in the room. Donald was already attached. Um, my experience with Donald falls within the Miss Universe, Miss USA, Miss Teen USA pageant. Um, and uh, I was the executive on those specials. Uh, and here's my take. When that man walks into a room, everyone pays attention. They really do. Um, I'm not sure what the mystique is. Um, he is a very tall person. He's a pretty foreboding presence when he walks in. Um, but from the minute uh, I first met him through the end of my run at, at NBC, every time he walked in the room, people stopped and paid attention. Um, and my favorite Donald story is he never um emailed or you know usually didn't even call my correspondences with him usually i mean almost whole, actually all of my correspondences with donald um were via facsimile he would write and then they would fax it to me and then i would write and fax back would he type or handwrite it he would handwrite it's yeah he would handwrite whatever he wanted handwrite and fax yeah and he would sign it i don't know that i ever had a phone conversation with him i think i talked to his assistant um, more often than, than him. And, you know, it wasn't a ton of interaction. Like I was dealing with the, the Miss Universe organization, but the few times we interacted, it was just, it was by facsimile. Your proudest moment in show business. The first one I'm going to mention is championing deal or no deal. It's something that, um, there were a lot of hurdles to get that thing to air, um, and to, schedule it correctly, market it correctly, find an audience, execute it correctly, build that momentum from night to night um, and that expectation that viewers had to come back because they were missing something. Um, so we got everything right on that show and that doesn't happen all of the time, including figuring out a way for, for viewers at home to play a game where they could win $10,000. Um, it was, it was huge internationally, but no one had figured out how to do it in the United States uh, because there's three time zones. So we, we weren't sure what to do. And we really thought about it for a long time. And um, this kind of technical genius at NBC at the time, he was a brand new, new guy named John Dax. He came in and said, we just need to have a control room. And I was like, oh, I get it. What if we treat it like a live show? And the game itself is a really long package, but we feed everything through a control room and we Chiron lower third, you know, the game and then the winner at the end of the hour. And we did it in three time zones um, and we pulled it off and no one had done it, done it before. And I don't know if anyone's really done it since, but it was hugely successful, dr dr drove quite a bit of revenue. Um, and it also engaged the fan base in a way before there was social media. So it really worked. Um, the second, I would say, is the day I got promoted to director of development. And that would... At NBC. At NBC. Um, when you 
I should say for me, when I was a coordinator, all I wanted was to be a manager. And then I thought, all right, I've made it. But when I became a manager, I realized I, there, there's not enough there there yet. Like I have to prove myself. But once I got to director, I thought, I have a career. Like I can, I can, I can do this. Like I, I might actually be able to do this for the rest of my life. The, I don't, I don't know why that title mattered so much, but I think it was, you know, the vote of confidence I received. And then also that's when my phone really started ringing, right? Like the town started calling. I was invited out to lunch and breakfast and drinks and dinner, which I did every day. I had a breakfast, a lunch, a drinks, a dinner, and usually a late drinks for more than 10 years. Um, just to build that network. But that title at NBC made a, made a huge difference for me. Um, and I, I remember calling home going, Mom, I, I, I think I made it. I think I'm going to be able to do this for a while. So that was fun. Those two, those two. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Wow. Um, you know, I don't know. I, 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 let me just say this. I don't, I don't know what my biggest disappointment is. I think there's been a series of disappointments uh, throughout my career, but quite honestly, I've I've had a pretty good run. I'm really I'm I'm really fortunate to have found two homes. Um, but if I were to say my biggest disappointment, I would have to say towards the end of my experience at NBC, we had gone from number one with Friends and ER and The West Wing and Frasier. Um, and when I left, I think they were in last place. Um, so it went from being a, an environment that was so amazing to work at, where everyone supported each other. And at the end, there, there wasn't a lot of support. I think people were sort of trying to point fingers a bit more than I think anyone would have liked. Um, and fortunately, they've turned it around. They've, they're doing really well. Um, but at that moment, um, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great place to work. Um, so it was a little bit tough and that fueled me to, uh, I really took that feeling in it and, and tried to process it. And then that fueled me to want to be successful at my next job. And you have been last question. What advice do you have for the young executive who's in some area of Texas that has a population of six and is watching television shows, figuring things out? And how do you get to the next level and make your start and break through as a television executive and get to the next level like you have? And also, what advice do you have for the actor, the entertainer, or the person that's also moving up that you've seen and you've observed throughout your life? You've seen a lot of people go from no fame at all to hugely successful as actors and actresses and performers. And what does it take for you to get the attention of somebody like you to say, this person can do this? Um, oh, there's a lot here. So this is great. Um, the first thing I would say is you better be in for the marathon. Like I'm going to use a bunch of cliches because they're all true. It is a marathon, not a sprint. Like just get here. And once you're here, get in. And once you're in, stay there. Don't quit. Don't move around a hundred times. Stay where you are and find within that group where you want to go, which is why I think the associates program is so fascinating because when you're at NBC, they work in every single department. Or for me, craft service, I met every person on the crew because they all had to eat. Um, so getting your foot in the door, persistence, um, 
I also use this example at my class at UCLA. They're like, how do you get that first gig? How did you know who to call? And I was like, we didn't have Google. Like I had to write down the names of the producers on the shows and the companies and then try to look them up in the library and like try to track them down. And it wasn't, I wasn't hugely successful at that, but eventually it kept me fueled. And I mean, it kept me fueled and eventually I got a gig. Today you can Google it. Um, and you'll find the production company and they usually have a website and there's usually a contact us and I was, let's just call them up. Um, so that's one way. But the, the bigger advice is get your foot in the door, stay there, don't give up. And when an opportunity presents itself, take it, but be prepared because if you don't succeed that first time, it, it might take God, these are such huge cliches, but it might take three or four times before something kicks. Um, a, a lot of it is talent. Like if the if you have a talent and you're passionate and you get in a room and you are 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 adamant enough about your idea, or that you want to be there, and you get lucky enough, which is also a big part of it, that someone recognizes your passion and your ability, um, you better befriend that person because that. That, that's going to be the relationship that takes you to the next level. Um, for me, you know, it was Jeff Gaspin. Like he believed in me. He promoted me multiple times. Uh, he even put me up for the gig at CMT with the, the headhunter. Um, so uh, again, like I found someone who I believed in, he believed in me back. And we, you know, I, I've been very fortunate. Does it put you in this bizarre situation? Let's just say he comes in with an idea. You know he's going to come to you. But you don't really spark to the idea. Because of the great relationship, are you the kind of person who says, look, I don't really see how this is going to work. I don't really figure But if you're willing to work with me because of all you've done for me and everything we have in our relationship, I'm going to move forward on this show and we'll figure it out as we go where you wouldn't normally do that. Or is it something where he comes in and you pass and you're like, Oh God, I, I stings passing when Jeff Gaspin comes to the room. How does that work for you? Uh, it, it stings every time. Like Jeff and I talk quite regularly and he's pitched many, many things and we've gotten very close on a couple, but we haven't, been in production on anything. We have a pilot together right now um, that we're going to produce soon. It's, it's hard. Um, you know, like I was the mentee for so long um, and I still am when, when we're together. So when we're together, I'm still the one getting sweaty. Like I'm the one who feels like, um, you know, I'm still learning from him. With, without a doubt. So in some ways, it's, I feel like he's still my boss because he's always, you know, sort of had that role in my life. Um, but I have a responsibility. And, you know, and he's so straightforward that if I just say, you know, I'm not seeing that idea for, for CMT, he gets it. Um, you know, we're, I would say, yeah, no, it's, it's, not, it's not incredibly difficult, but it, yeah, you still get a little sting. Got it. Tell our audience the fundamental thing or things about a pitch, somebody coming in and pitching you an idea that makes you say, I want this show versus the people walking in. And afterwards you just say to your assistant, listen, those people call, we never take another meeting again. Uh, um, 
I, I, for us right now, there are, there are your, your filter changes, you know, on a regular basis based on the needs of the channel or where television's headed for us. Fortunately, we have a very clear brand, um, probably one of the clearest in all of television. So, uh, everything we do has some tangential relationship to country music. Um, most of the things we do have, uh, uh, some uh, alliance with the sensibilities of our biggest stars or their fan base. Um, so our filter is very clear, usually like strong, relatable characters that you can identify with that are flawed in some way, but they're trying to be the best version of themselves. Um, comedy works for us, but, uh, in the unscripted space, it needs a big hook. It needs to demand that I find marketing dollars to support it so that it can find an audience. So it's celebrity driven or repeatable with a big name, um, uh, producer or on camera. Um, but um, you know, if it is super formulaic and can be done anywhere else, we pass. Um, there was a time where we were looking for shows to compete with Discovery and History and A&E. You know, History had Swamp People, A&E had um, uh, Duck Dynasty, and uh, the idea was that's playing to the middle of the country, that should play on CMT. So we went down that path for a bit, and then we realized quite quickly, one, we don't want to be in a bidding war with these other channels. Um, two, that's not going to differentiate us in the marketplace. Um, and three, we also wanted to make our channel super pretty. So, you know, if you look at the channel now, we have Kelly Pickler and we have the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders and we have, you know, Connie Britton and Hayden Panettiere and um, Chad Michael Murray is starring in a scripted series for us. So our filter is very clear. But to answer the question directly, if someone comes in with an idea that is innovative, um, it's something I haven't heard before or haven't seen in a while, right? That's been a void in the marketplace that has all of the elements that fit the needs of the channel right now, whether it's repeatability or celebrity or big shiny floor, whatever our needs are at that point, if it happens to fit, that's what we'll buy. Um, and in the scripted space, you know, again, we look for things that um, uh, have either great IP attached that will be easy to sell through to the audience um, or auspices that we've been fans of for quite a long time, or just a really good idea. Um, and I know that's not super specific, but you know, you'd be surprised how many of this, the, how many ideas you hear over and over and over again. And one of the things we don't want to do, and everybody says this, I don't want to be derivative, but we don't, we really have the opportunity at CMT to not be derivative because People always say, why don't you just do a country version of American Idol? You know, bring back Nashville Star. Um, and I always say, we, 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 this is a conscious decision not to do that. Because one, country is served so well across those shows. Whether it was Keith Urban on American Idol, whether it's Blake Shelton on The Voice. But honestly, Blake's, win, you know, the winners are usually somewhat affiliated with country music. Um, so we're served so well. And those are exceptional productions. Right? They, they spend an incredible amount of money making the best television shows and doing a great service for our industry. Um, at a, in a cable model, I would have to spend less. It would actually do a disservice to the genre. Um, and so we, we're not going to get in that game. Jason Dinsmore, you did not disappoint in your first podcast. This was fantastic. How long have we been going at it? <laughs> a little over two hours. Oh, my God. So that'll cut down to about seven minutes. I'm so... <laughs> I don't know what I said. Uh, was it okay for you? 
Yeah, no, it was great. <laughs> I really, I mean, look, I enjoyed it. I'm sure I fumbled a bunch of stuff, but uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity because I looked at the list of people you've had on this show and I was like, why the heck does he want me to come on and, and, and be a part of this? But then I, I, I realized that, you know, we have such a history together. We do. And you've always treated me so well. It makes me want to cry. Sometimes when you probably didn't want to treat me well. And I always somehow lasted and always had a job there, even though I felt like I was fired every single year. And you were always there with your smiling face, even if maybe you were the one who stayed my execution or were on the other side, whatever it was. You were always there, and I always appreciated it, and you have an enormous amount to offer, and you've done amazing work, and you've transformed people's lives as much as they've transformed you. So thank you very, very much. Oh, that's really kind of you. Thanks, Barry. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on James Schrode from Tiffin, Ohio. Congratulations, James. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Princess LJB. Interesting, three stars. Read, listening to Randy Jackson can be both interesting and annoying. I love the ideas and context, but wish it were presented in a different way. I wanted to listen to this interview because I feel more familiar with him. He just seems too cocky. All right, Princess LJB, congratulations. Thank you. All right, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune and pain 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.